Global consumerism is a $40 trillion a year phenomenon, which makes it the largest, most predictable investment opportunity on the planet. Who are the prime beneficiaries of global consumption trends? Mega brands. Welcome to the Mega Brands podcast series. I'm your host, Eric Clark. In this podcast, we explore mega trends through the lens of a global investor with the ultimate goal of identifying the most relevant, most innovative brands that are best positioned to become what I call mega brands. These are the brands that are customer obsessed, have a corporate culture of innovation and self-disruption, create products and services that are in high demand, that exhibit strong brand love from customers, are serving a global opportunity and appeal to multiple demographic groups. What's the reward for a company that meets these criteria? More revenue, more cash flow, higher market share, and the potential to reach the trillion dollar club. Please enjoy our next episode of Mega Brands. Eric Clark is the portfolio manager for the Rational Dynamic Brands Fund in conjunction with his partners at AccuVest Global Advisors. All opinions expressed by Eric and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of AccuVest Global Advisors or Rational Funds. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of the Brands Fund or AccuVest may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Well, without any further ado, let's uh, let's talk to Gabriel Hammond of MLS uh, Advisors. Hey, Gabriel, how are you? Very good. How are you doing, Eric? I'm doing okay. Um, where are you uh, calling in from? Wherever it is, see, I know the answer to this. So this is a big setup. Wherever it is is better than 99% of the people that are going to be listening to us today. See, I, I, was, I was trying to tone down the background. I mean, I thought you were only recording, but still, just to not risk it, I didn't want to give away that I was hanging out in, in Cabo San Lucas. It doesn't seem right. <laughs> we, should, we should all be so lucky. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, the, I was spending some time on, on the MLS site and looking at your presentation. I think it would, a great place to start would be just give people a real quick overview of, you know, the last 20 years. There's a great chart in your institutional deck that talks about from, you know, kind of 04 to 2019 when you started MLS. So would love to hear, you know, the path that you took to get you where you are today. And then, you know, hear why you created MLS and what, what strategies that you're 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 creating and why and you know in, in some ways what you're trying to solve by by creating some new strategies and I think we have some similarities to why I created the global brand strategy but uh, I'll I'll uh, we'll pick up on that after you give us a little history uh, of you from the last you know kind of twenty years. I, I will. I mean, it's terrifying that there's there's twenty years of history to discuss. Quite frankly, that that, that, that scares me very much, but. I mean, I'll, I'll take you even further back than that to, I mean, to, to put perspective on it all. I mean, gosh, from, from 13 to 19, I wanted to be an attorney, which, of course, retrospect, a terrible idea. But I love to argue. I love to win. And I, I went to college thinking I'd be uh, a lawyer. And I, for some reason, I'm still not sure what possessed me, but I took the you know, $2,000 I'd saved over the summer from you know, lifeguarding and being a swim coach and, and giving less, giving lessons. And for some reason, the, the year after my senior year of high school, I, I started just uh, you know, day trading in, in, in the stock market. And um, it was you know, the time when all of the E-Trade and you know, Day Tech, which isn't around anymore, TDs, except, I mean, 
it was kind of the, the wild west at that point and it, it completely changed everything for me because I just found this excitement and this passion and started doing small cap research and, and I loved knowing that you know, there was no analyst coverage on these stocks and I could really dig in and figure out what was going on underneath and so it completely changed around my, my career plans which is what led me to think I wanted to be an investment banker even though in truth I as a junior in college I had no idea what an investment banker truly did. Um, not, not, not the slightest clue, but you know, mercifully, fate um, um, you know, dealt me a hand in, in investment research. And it was just such an amazing team there that although I'd been dead set on being a banker, per se, for whatever reason, I, uh, there's this amazing team, uh, the Energy and Power Group at, at Goldman Sachs. And even though I didn't have a background in Energy and Power, they were just they were rock stars. They were mentors. They were guys that I wanted to learn from. And so I said, you know what? I forget this banking thing. I'm going to go into investment research because I just want to soak it up from from these these three fellows. Um, and uh, I, I I really lucked out with with that decision. And and that's how I got introduced to Master Limited Partnerships. Um, you know, I, I you know, business unit leader David Fleischer, uh, amazing human being, and he gave me the opportunity to just really run roughshod over the the master limited partnership sector, a group of companies that Goldman did a tremendous amount of banking business with, but had, had never even bothered to, to, to really cover traditionally speaking uh, from an equity research side. So I was able to put my hand up and, and take coverage of those companies and, and just really uh, just learn an, an incredible amount. And, and, and I, I thought the sector had so much potential at that point. It was I don't know, 15 companies and, 30 billion of market capitalization and nobody was really focused and uh, it led me to to leave the the firm not even three years later because they just weren't putting the the resources towards it that that um that i thought it it, it deserved and, and i thought you know gosh there's really nobody out there doing this we've had a single closed end fund launched in this space beginning of 2003 uh tortoise launched tyg and you know seminal event in mlp land you got to give them the credit for um, and uh, I just I saw an opportunity to, to build a brand in an emerging asset class. And, uh, in, in retrospect, it was crazy to leave my job at you know, 25, looking like I was 12, to, to launch an asset management firm. But I just I felt so strongly and and such conviction in both the performance of the stocks, but also that what was a 50 billion dollar asset class was going to become a half a trillion dollar asset class. That that's what led me in that direction. It's what led me to create the Alarian MLP index as the first benchmark of that asset class. And I mean, it was tough. No one wanted to give me money and probably for good reason, quite frankly. Uh, you know, for the first three years, uh, it was impossible to attract anybody to the fund. I, I really lucked out that the week after I left Goldman Sachs, I went to lunch with a uh, venerated portfolio manager and founder Hans Uch. Well, I didn't go to lunch with him. I went to a big group lunch, got seated next to him. Uh, and if, if Hans hadn't provided me with the uh, $5 million seed investment, I, I don't know that any of this would have ever happened, quite frankly. Um, and so I'm still incredibly you know, grateful to you know, an amazing founder and investor who, who gave me that, that opportunity. So that's what enabled that to, to grow. But by 2007, when I thought we'd actually reached some degree of success, I, I, I became very nervous about the market. MLP valuations were at stratospheric levels and, and folks were trying to justify them with uh, just you know, logic that made no sense to me. And I 
basically went to cash in, in all of our funds. And it was tough because, I mean, one, my, my partner at the time thought this was a terrible idea. And we, it was just, it was, it was stressful. And, you know, it was not about you know, right or wrong, but um, it was, it was really stressful having to you know, battle your, your friend and, and partner on, on those decisions on a daily basis. And you know, frankly, our investors weren't very happy with me either because they said it was my job to invest in MLPs, not to make market calls. And I, I just felt that um, no matter what my MLP strategy was, I was going to lose 50% of their money in the coming year. So that was not a good strategy. Um, I, I thought we were going to have to fold the, the firm in, in, in 2008 and, and put it into bankruptcy. I actually went to a number of my competitors and offered them the fund and the Alarian indexes for free if they would put my uh, employees on long-term contracts. And n nobody was, was interested in, in taking me up on that offer. And um, we, we, we really lucked out because in, in 2009, we had uh, a client that large East Coast registered investment advisor that had been an investor in the now JP Morgan note AMJ. And they wanted additional exposure, but since it's a note, it was JP Morgan credit. Right. So they said, hey, look, we can't have more than 25 million of J.P. Morgan credit on our books. So, you know, would you, Alarian, write another note with anybody else? Goldman, Deutsche Bank, whoever. We, we, we need to diversify this, but we want more MLP exposure. And I said, well, first of all, as you can imagine, it's an exclusive contract because you know, J.P. Morgan doesn't want um, funds proliferating you know, willy nilly on the same index. But I also said, you know, what, you don't really want an exchange traded note, right? Why, why take any credit risk? All, all of your clients are onshore U.S. taxable. Let's create a vehicle that allows you to take advantage of the return of capital characteristics, the master limited partnerships. And we realized that what they wanted was uh, was a mutual fund. But um, at that point, it was common knowledge on whether it was Wall Street or in you know, the you know, halls of energy in Houston and Dallas that you, you couldn't make an MLP mutual fund. It just didn't exist. It was against the rules, but, you know, SEC wouldn't let you do it. And the distinction that folks had missed was that there is a difference between being an open-ended fund under the 40 Act and being a RIC under IRS tax designations. And a RIC isn't a, a structure of investment product. It's simply a box you check like corporation or LLC or LP when you, you fill out your, your tax form with the IRS. And so you could indeed have a, a, a mutual fund that, that, that held those names. And that's really what, what changed it all for, for our company because developing that structure and, and shepherding that through the SEC and, and working with them to make sure they understood it and get us the permissions we needed was what allowed the company to I mean, survive quite frankly. Uh, and it paved the way for us to, to structure the first um, Alarian uh, publicly traded ETF. Right. So that's what got us back on our feet. Absolutely. And it was, you know, I mean, I remember it was, you know, it was this asset class that had such a sexy story, had great in, income generation at the time, you know, for a long time, it had great total return. And yet most people didn't even own the asset class. So you, you got the benefit of this this recognition phase, you getting there early, seeing the value, understanding that nothing really existed for the average person, maybe even the institution. I guess, I guess maybe the biggest institutions had a lot of access, but but most other people probably didn't. You created that package and then allowed allowed the 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 word to spread 
because there was opportunity to get it to get instantly in the asset class had a massive run i mean like i'm sure you remember like every firm was launching the me too product you know i there's so much demand for mlps and energy infrastructure i just have to have a strategy just you know under my brand i mean it was just one after the other after the other but it's kind of nice that you know you should pat yourself on the back for for being the trailblazer you know the <laughs> sometimes it's a lot more stressful and volatile but in the end if you do your if you do your work right and you get some luck and hard work you know you get you get paid much better than anybody else for being the trailblazer i appreciate that no no thank you eric yeah it was it was quite a time yeah it was quite yeah. a time i'm just so so after let's see you you sold steel path what in 2012 is that right no, that, that, that's exactly right i mean so we 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 went from zero of assets in 2009 to i guess you combined between the two companies close to you know, 10 billion dollars three years later and we we sold steel path to oppenheimer funds now Invesco at the end of 2012 and that was that was a case of our thinking, you know, there's there's someone that can I mean, I, I wish that I would have been able to keep a piece of that company. I mean, I would have loved to have kept a minority interest in that, except all the folks that we were looking to partner with said, you know, they were the big you know, mutual fund giants. And, and they all said, look, we, we don't buy 51 percent or 75 percent. We buy 100 percent. And so, you know, we had an earn out with that transaction. But, you know, goodness, like I, I just um I wish I could have kept a piece of that company, but it, it did what it needed to do from from a personal perspective and diversifying a piece of myself away from from master limited partnerships inside all my eggs in a in a certain sector. And frankly, it was it was an amazing deal for for Oppenheimer. I mean, they, they took it to at its height. It was two billion, I think, when the transaction closed, and they took it to fourteen billion dollars. Now it's the portfolio manager of those funds till till two thousand fifteen. Um, I mean, it was it, it was a fantastic run that did amazing things for for their company and, and, and personnel so we're really happy that um they they did so well with it and again it did what it needed to do for us and so um you know that that allowed me to to focus on alarian uh, and thinking strategically about that company and and in 2018 we we, we sold alarian and that also coincided with the end of my my, my non-compete from the asset management transaction. In other words, of course, I had a, an exculpation for the ownership of Valerian um, and the you know, passive indexing side. But you know, other than that, you know, so I, I was I was waiting for that to, to finish so that I could you know, jump back into uh, into the business on on the active side of things. So at the you know, end of 2018, my, my CFO at Valerian, uh, you know, Dave Saxena, you know, 20 year plus friend, um, we uh, we started putting together the the seeds of, of what would become endless. We'd, we'd had this liquidity event and there were a number of, of asset classes and, and investment themes that we wanted to put our, our funds to work in, but we we couldn't find the existing vehicles to do it. But, you know, whether it was the, the structure, the the fees, the, the lack of access, and, and we said to ourselves, you know, goodness, if we're going to go through the the, the trouble of, of putting together these these structures, then we should bring other folks into the fold and, and we should start a, a new asset management firm that focuses more broadly off the Alarian DNA of, of access, liquidity, and transparency. That was kind of the, the tagline of the first ads that, that we put out in you know, Wall Street Journal and such when we when we launched those companies' products. And, and we always, that was the mantra. So 
more broadly, of course, moving out of energy infrastructure, but thinking about access, liquidity, and transparency across other emerging asset classes or, or sectors where we couldn't get that exposure in the public markets. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, listen, I, I love what you said a, a little while ago. You know, you took the opportunity to build a brand in, a, in an emerging asset class that had a lot of merit. And, and that's, you know, for, for me on, the, on the, the consumer spending and on the brand side, that's kind of what we, that's kind of what we do. And, and what I saw in 2015 with the intangible assets in, in brands, because people always ask me about, you know, why brands? I mean, I know intuitively they're really good companies and, you know, they're, they're leaders in business, but, but why anchor to them? And, and once you walk them through the, the, the story, they, they just realize that, you know, our industry does not understand intangible assets. You know, analysts generally live and breathe in the balance sheet and the income statement. And, and brands tend to fall outside of that in most cases. And so, so the industry naturally doesn't really know how to analyze those kind of companies. So I love, you know, there is definitely some similarities with, with kind of, you know, some of our, our career tra trajectories. Um, so if I look at, if I look at the MLS, you know, you have six ETFs currently, uh, which, which was the one that you launched first? We launched four of them simultaneously okay. uh, back last fall, and then uh, the, the subsequent two followed a couple of months later, um, simply because in some cases, given, for example, Lux's international exposure, the number of uh, international clearing accounts that we had to set up, it just takes months because the way business is done in, in certain places. And so it was unable to be available for the launcher. We would have had all six there, but yeah, no, excited. Yeah, yeah, and I, you know, we, uh, so, so Acuvest, the firm that I work with, they are, you know, outsource CIOs. So we buy ETFs. So, so, you know, I found your site because some of the ETFs were intriguing from that side of the business. And then, you know, as, as the guy who runs the brands, you know, kind of P&L for, for active, for, for Acuvest, the, the, the luxury goods ETF really was interesting because I, I love luxury. It's a big, you know, subcomponent of the brand strategy right now. Um, you know, we, we do have some names that are, that are in common. Um, you know, I own Apple and I own Tesla and Nike and Adidas and a few, a few of the other ones, but, you know, let's talk Lux for a minute. Uh, symbol is L-U-X-E. It is, a, you know, I would say probably, correct me if I'm wrong, but, you know, broad base, but within the luxury goods category, because it does include a lot of different sub industries within what you would consider that that has a lot of luxury, luxury companies, luxury brands. So tell me about, you know, what was it about the luxury goods category that intrigued you and, uh, and, and why, you know, somebody might want to want to carve out a sliver of a portfolio for that particular segment? Sure. Well, uh, when when our one of our portfolio managers during a, a new products committee meeting introduced this concept, and I couldn't believe it didn't exist. You know, I, I kind of gave him a, a pat on the back and said, "Well, you know, that's fantastic, but I mean, there's no way that, that this hasn't been done ten times till Sunday. I mean, that there this must exist in you know five different forms, and there must be a hundred different indices that follow this." and I mean, I was shocked that there, there's not even a, a benchmark index for whether you want to refer to this as subsector asset class, however, you break out the brands. But I was shocked to find that there's not even an index that, that, that tracks this sector. That, that was amazing to me as, as well. And then you know, given the 
proliferation of in quote thematic ETFs, I was I was also very surprised to see that the that the product didn't, didn't exist. So hat, hats off to to, to Yev for for you creating this. And I I like it for a couple of reasons. One is that although you know not immune to the the vagaries of the the broader economy, there's there's a certain inelasticity to these goods purchases because a lot of the folks that are buying in these categories have a base level of income that allows them to reach for these independent of any one year's income. In other words, their purchasing habits are are based off their wealth as opposed to their income um, by and large. And so that to me creates a certain inelasticity of demand that's that's very unique for this. And again, it's you know, for, for better or for worse, it's just you, you see rising income disparity and you know there's you know plenty of 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 reasons why that's good and, or, or bad in, in and of itself, but as it pertains to this, the fact is it's hard to think it's not going to continue to happen. And, and part of that is, I mean, quite frankly, it's that if you had a great invention in the 1800s, you know, during your lifetime, I mean, you might get a castle out of it locally, but it would probably take a hundred years to spread to other countries. Whereas today, if you have a good idea, I mean, forget about like increased manufacturing capabilities. I mean, you think about the the internet and you think about apps. I mean, you can instantly put that in nearly eight billion people's hands. Um, it, it's just phenomenal how ideas travel today and how that creates wealth for for individuals. So that the the scope of that enterprise value creation is is something that I mean I expect will continue. I mean, it's why Silicon Valley continues to proliferate unicorns. It's um, and so that's there. I think that theme, that underpinning. Look at what's happening in China and, and India, who are, are major consumers of of these brand names and are, and are hungry for more. Just have a tremendous appetite. So internationally, there's again a tremendous inner inelastic underpinning. So I kind of start down from that top down approach to who's who's really going to be buying these products and how is that different from from other products so let's start there i i like that and then going back to your conversation on brands i just i i think it's just it, it's so powerful uh, in, in terms of you've got there's there's plenty of businesses there's plenty of widget manufacturers but having a brand that stands out really allows you to you know capture such an excess economic return and and these types of companies have done an amazing job at setting themselves ahead of the competition. So their product development cycles innately uh, in, in many ways benefit from that. It, it's, a, it's a virtuous circle. So uh, on an individual basis, as we look at those components, we think they've got a, a better shot of, of continuing to create innovative products and spark additional consumer demand as well. You know, it's funny, the, the, from a timing perspective, I mean, listen, what, I think both of us agree having some luxury goods exposure in a portfolio all the time makes sense, right? These are just great businesses with lots of global demand with terrific pricing power. I mean, you know, $100 yoga pants fly off the shelf, $1,200 goose coats fly off the shelf, you know, $60,000 Teslas, you know, sold out supply. So, so there is this, this thematic, obviously, you know, there's 7 billion people around the world and some of them are just, you know, moving out of poverty and into the middle class and doing what, you know, have aspirations there. Some of them are moving up from, from having, you know, a decent, uh, decent uh, amount of savings and, and money to, you know, to moving into a, you know, early wealth. And some of them are just uber rich. 
but all of those people look at some of these aspirational brands as they want to reach for them. And, and increasingly, you know, with, with, you know, one of the themes in the brand strategy is this buy now, pay later. With that thematic, the, you're a, some of these luxury goods are able to reach the average, you know, consumer when sometimes they were out of reach from a cost perspective. So there's, to me, that's just going to continue to drive the, the, the adoption, not just for the, for the Uber, from the Uber, Uber rich. And, you know, let's face it, there's two and a half trillion in savings right now. I saw somewhere like $83 billion of consumer credit has been paid down. So consumers in general are probably as well off and their balance sheets are as, are as stable and solid as they've probably been in multi-decades. And, you know, as we get back to the vaccinations and the economy gets back together, all of a sudden you start to see this $2 trillion get unleashed into, into the into the wild, if you will, and luxury goods are going to be one of those categories that are going to that are probably going to have really good tailwinds for a number of years to come. So, you know, again, all the time it makes sense, but I think from a timing perspective, with with all that money pent up and wanting to get out and do different things and buy things that we haven't bought, I can't think of a better time for these kind of businesses. And and you know, the market was was struggling. Uh, the last couple of weeks. And so now you're getting a lot of these companies, Ferrari is on sale, um, actually had a good quarter. They don't suffer from a supply problem. They suffer from, you know, from just, or they, excuse me, they don't suffer from a demand issue. That's just a supply issue for a $300,000, you know, starting point. <laughs> that's amazing to me. Crazy. Um, no, I, I, I agree. So, so fr from, from this portfolio then, I mean, you know, one of the other things I, I think that is probably a decent catalyst, and we saw a little bit of this with LVMH buying Tiffany, there is this kind of M&A, you know, if you are a brand and you really resonate with global consumers, you're a valuable company. And there are some big 800 pound gorillas out there that are always looking to, you know, acquire great other brands to kind of build this house of brands. And, you know, Who's the, the, the founder of, uh, of LBMH? Bruno, I think, is that his last name? I forget. I mean, this guy's, if not, you know, in the top 10 wealthiest, you know, people in the yeah. world, right? So he's done pretty yeah. good. <laughs> so, so is there any other, any other parts of this story um, that you want to talk about just from, you know, we can certainly get into some of the names too. I mean, again, I, I find investors like to know what they own. And if you have really, if you have high familiarity and, and passion for these names, I mean, one, most importantly, it's going to keep you in when the doo-doo's hitting the fan. When CNBC's scaring everybody to death, these are companies, these are strategies that people tend not to want to purge. And they tend to, you know, they tend to cut the things that they don't really understand before they cut the things that they love. So there's, there's some stability in, in, a, in an ETF like this. I think anyway, I'd love to hear your kind of thoughts on all this stuff. I think one of the other tailwinds that this suite of brands has behind it is that I think overall, even after we turn the corner on, on COVID, we've got a full reopening, which I agree is going to be fantastic for, for these names. I think people's lifestyles are going to be changed forever as a result of this. I, I think the event has made people philosophically re-examine the importance of their time, but I also think it's made them realize that you can really do business 
over Zoom. You can. I mean, I'm not suggesting. In fact, you know, I've got an in-person meeting this this afternoon here. But I'm not suggesting that's not going to happen. But I mean, my goodness, I think from a lifestyle choice perspective, things aren't going to go back to the the way they were. And the fact that people are going to say to themselves, "I can work and be in the mountains. I can work and be on the beach. I can work every bit as hard and be as productive." That their choice and incentive set for the types of goods that they're going to want to own and the way they're going to spend their time under those circumstances, I think is a long-term tailwind. In other words, it's even after everything goes back to normal, I think people's habits are going to be changed forever because this has opened their eyes to a, a number of new possibilities, which are going to keep the wind in the sails of this group of brands. People want to continue to spend additionally on these. I'm excited. You know, I'd love to hear your views. I mean, when I look at the holdings, I've downloaded it, so I think they're real time on the, you know, day over day on the on the uh, the website, right? Yes. So, you know, what I find interesting is, you know, you have some value, you have some growth, you probably have some small, you have some large, you have some U.S., you have some non-U.S., you have some emerging markets. If I'm uh, or is this mostly developed? It's mostly developed. Okay. okay. You do have a, a, a good deal of international exposure to France, Korea, but it is, it is largely developed. Okay. And I'm, sh I'm sure there are emerging market companies that are trying desperately to build the next LVMH or the next, you know, Richemont or, or, or whatever. But, but what I love about it is that it's kind of all cap, if you will, and, it, and it's global in scope. So it's gonna fill a lot of different boxes, but it's also, you know, you have Volkswagen in here, you have uh, Mercedes, you have BMW, so you're, and you have Tesla. So you have a pure EV and you have uh, auto, auto companies that are rapidly getting into EV with Porsche and BMW and, and Volkswagen, yep. et cetera. So you, you definitely have what I consider more thoughtful exposure to getting into EV rather than some of these crazy speculative names that won't produce a car for, you know, for three years. And if they do, they'll produce, you know, 500 cars year one, that kind of thing. Whereas, you know, VW, et cetera, are spending billions and billions of dollars to get into this business, even though we could probably critique them and say that they probably were asleep at the switch watching Tesla eat their lunch for a long time, maybe, maybe wanting Tesla to prove demand <laughs> and then they could just take their might and their capital and jump in. Um, but, but you just have some, some great, great businesses. Uh, top 10 holdings, Volkswagen, Diageo, uh, the liquor and beer company, Apple, um, Mercedes-Benz, Estee Lauder, Nike, BMW, Richemont, uh, which is a uh, very expensive jewelry company, um, and then Tesla and Adidas. So to me, I, I mean, mean, to your point before, I'm fascinated to see how the EV race plays out because, uh, again, and you can certainly question their strategy to your point in terms of sitting back to this point. It, it does boggle the mind. But I, I am really interested as, as they advance their technology, whether you know, they as Mercedes, BMW, Volkswagen, all, all these folks, and whether people are going to want a slightly better engine from you know, electric battery maker or whether they're going to want a slightly underpowered car from a luxury car manufacturer that knows exactly how to build a beautiful and amazing automobile. 
Um, it's it just, I, I'm very curious to see how the consumer demand patterns work out as Porsche, as BMW uh, increase their, their supply chain on that and really get those cars into the marketplace and compete. It, it's, that's one of the, I mean, I, 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 I can't pretend to, to know what the outcome will be, but I'm, I'm very curious to see what happens to, to Tesla's market share as those experienced luxury automobile manufacturers get, get those out in, in mass and at, at price points. And, and look, they know how to build amazing cars. They do, they do. And I, I mean, you know, the, the, I think obviously there's a fascination with EV. Last year, Tesla was up some ungodly number, I don't know, 600% or whatever the number was. It, it, it was clearly a, you know, I'm a style factor guy. So if I look at my style factor heat map last year, the, the best returns came from the most expensive, highest price to sales, you know, highest revenue growers, and, and for, for obvious reasons. And then this year, you know, look at ARC ETFs have just kind of collapsed. They're down 30 plus percent. So, you know, but they did, they were up 150%. So I don't know if I'm going to boohoo for them being down 30. It never feels good for the people that are owning those things. But, you know, I, I think what people need to understand is these, these luxury brands have enormous track records. You know, one of, one of the things that I talk about a lot with advisors is that, you know, I almost feel like I have a secret. I, I have done a ton of work on the best brands, the most relevant brands. And part of that work was back-looking returns. And back-looking is just back-looking, right? Nobody knows the future. But if, you're, if you are a, an industry leader and you're in an important spending category and you have global opportunities and you, and you appeal to younger people and older people and you have high brand love, there's massive opportunities. So in theory, those companies should be great stocks. And I think if you look back at, at a lot of the names, I mean, LVMH has been a great performer. In many cases, it's outperformed the S&P and, and you know, the, the European markets have underperformed the S&P for generally speaking for a long time. So a lot of these names are in my, in my opinion, I'll, I'll go out on a limb and say that LUXE will probably outperform the IFA most of the time, you know, I mean, I, I understand everybody wants to get diversified, but I think there are slivers of categories within within indexes that are probably set up to outperform much better than the overall indexes. Because let's face it, not every, you know, every every broad market index is filled with some stuff that you may not ever want to own. And and so I like the sliver. I, I like, you know, some of the emerging market e-commerce plays within EM. It's crushed the EM market. So there just seems to be a lot of ways to win with this ETF and this category. Um, anything in particular you want you want to say about about LUXE um, before I just ask you maybe a couple of questions about a few of the other offerings that you have? I, I think big picture and and this this pertains to many of our other offerings as well, if not all all of them really. In their genesis, I mean, we we really look for decade-long investment themes. When we put these products together, sometimes ETFs are thought of as more strategically or overweights, underweights, and allowing people to get access in that fashion. But but to us, for us to bother to, to put a product together, we really want to think that there's a 10-year runway. 
I mean, you fast forward there, you know, that won't be perpetual, of course, right? But when we launch something, we really look over the long term. And, and I, I think that there's, again, there's, there's really something systemic happening here. And that over the next 10 years, uh, I, I think you will see significant outperformance, whether it's relative to more selective indexes or the broader market. So uh, I, I do feel good about that. And, and that's why we launched that product, is that we view it as more of a, call it a semi-permanent allocation over the next seven to 10 years. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I, I went to my, my guys, you know, I, I wrote the prospectus for the fund and I, you know, we have the ability to buy ETFs. And I was talking to my partners the other day and I just said, you know, I, I want to make sure that you're okay with this, but I want to start using LUXE for, for some of our allocations because, you know, there are so many names, you know, I can't, I have 200 stocks in my brands index that I can't stray from, but I can go around that by owning an ETF like this, where I can get access to some of these names that aren't in the brands index, not because they're not great businesses, but just because I only had 200 slots to fill. So I think, you know, if you are an ETF strategist or you're an outsourced CIO, I think you should, you know, at least take a look at this strategy and why, and the, and the, the deck that you guys put together, because I think it's pretty compelling just from a category perspective. And then once you look into the names, if you're familiar with brands, you're just going to be like, oh my gosh, this thing is chock full of great businesses that are so unique and different and have great price points, et cetera. Um, so la last question for you, you know, looking at the fund, uh, the fund list, I mean, are there any ones that, you know, we all have our favorites, right? We have favorite asset classes, we have favorite strategies. Aside from LUXE, is there, I mean, you've got some really interesting stuff in here. Is there any any one other that you just are pretty you know pretty geeked up on right now? The, the Made in America product, uh, AMER, that that's probably one of my favorites. And again, that, that that to us is is going to be structural over the next five to ten years. It just whether you look at what the current administration is doing, whether you think about just the natural return and concern and focus on supply chains in the you know, post-COVID world. I mean, that's the thing. Again, things will go back to normal, but people don't want to leave themselves exposed uh, in the way that they have been internationally at this point. So I, I do think that American manufacturing is going to make a comeback, but there's going to be a substantial focus on, on building out that capacity, on, on maximizing that and, uh, and spare capacity. So I, I feel I, I like that theme. I like those names. I'd say out of out of the, the rest of the products, that's that's certainly one of my favorites. Where again, I just see a, a structural decade long play from this moment uh, in those types of companies outperforming. Now, are these companies that are headquartered in the U.S. and also manufacture their products and and services and everything in the U.S.? Is that what that that means? That's exactly what it is. It's a screen that looks at the manufacturing capacity in the United States and those companies and throughout all stages of the product design that create them here in the United States. That's, 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 it's very important. And so, again, that includes certain defense companies and, and it includes that, again, intuitively, um, you might think of those as think about further federal budget balancing and what the government's going to do to continue to spur the economy and otherwise. So it really benefits from the, the federal spending side as well as we think about what's happening on the, um, I guess I would say the jumpstarting the economy side. So in the short term, there's some you know, double tailwinds there for some of those names in particular, but you no, know, exactly. We want to see names that through every 
point of the process are using that capacity here in the United States, in addition to you know, whether their headquarters being here. Right, right. Well, it certainly performed well. I'm looking at uh, as of uh, April 30th information, it's performed really well. For, for people who were interested in buying these ETFs, is, is from, a, from a liquidity perspective, is it okay just use limit orders? Is that usually what people say? Hey, just, you know, unless you're buying SPY with, you know, a penny, a penny wide from a spread, just put in limit, limit orders or, or are you okay with other stuff too? No, you can, you can use limit orders. I mean, we've got a fantastic team of both market makers and, and APs on, on all of these names. So anyone that wants to, to enter in size is going to be able to do so. I mean, the underlying in these indexes, the underlying names have substantial liquidity. So uh, there's definitely the opportunity to, uh, whether it's to engage in a more direct transaction to, to, to get into size. Yeah. partners and for and for advisors that'll be listening to this I, I just want to remind you um as a guy who mostly focuses on a mutual fund nobody ever calls and asks me how many shares were purchased or sold in the mutual fund today so you shouldn't care about that in an etf the implied and correct me if i'm wrong but the implied liquidity is all that matters so unless you got about 150 million bucks of money you want to spend today you're not going to have a liquidity problem Use a limit order, or if you have, you know, five or ten million bucks, you want to you want to allocate across the, the the book. You know, what's best? Should they call you directly, or should they call their trading desk? How, how's that work? Yeah, look, we we have an amazing operations team. I mean, one of the things that Dave and I are proudest of uh, is the, the the team that we've built there, and and Tim Darcy, the CEO of, of, of that business, has been fantastic. So uh, they can call us directly and work with our desk if they've got a preferred AP that they work with their specialists that they've they've done these transactions before they can go directly there. But we're happy to facilitate and to, to do so inside. So. Okay. Awesome, Gabriel. Well, listen, I, uh, I, I can't tell you that uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to use the, the ETF, the, the Lux ETF today, but I'm pretty close. I mean, I, I in fact, I looked at it today. I'm like, ooh, there are a couple of names that I might want to buy. And you know what, why would I just try to figure out, do I own Ferrari here or do I add to, you know, Estee Lauder? Do I, I'll just buy the whole basket. I did buy some, some LVMH today, but the, some of the names in there, I just would love to get some, some access to. So from a website perspective, the website is emles.com. And if somebody does want to contact, what's, I'm sure you have some sort of a sales and marketing email address. What, what's the best way for people to reach exactly. out? Exactly. There's, there's a, a sales and marketing client contact address on the website. Absolutely. Okay. Terrific. Well, listen, Gabriel, I, uh, it was really fun to one, hear your story about, you know, the pre MLS and, uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to, to seeing more. You, do you have any other uh, products that you're going to be launching? Are you going to stick with these for a while? We do. We, we've got an amazing manager that we're about to launch. It's going to be our first active ETF. We're, we're really excited and, and proud. Uh, he's, uh, again, a, a gentleman I've, I've known for, gosh, almost 24 years now. Um, we were worked at Goldman together in the investment research department. We, we wanted to work together for some time, and we've really found the, the perfect way to do it. So we're going to be launching our, our, our first active ETF um, by before the end of the month, actually. And um, you know, I've I've had an allocation with him, and he's he's I, he's he's fantastic. I couldn't be more uh, excited or, or proud to be to be working with Nathan. So um, that that's really going to be deep value, just 
very esoteric strategy in terms of the allocation of, of alpha to that. If you look at the portfolio he's had over the last year and his performance, you, you'd think that he'd owned all these large cap tech names, given that um, he's been in the, 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 the fund that he runs for for, for our money. I mean, gosh, it's, uh, he's uh, it's up 400% in the last year. You'd think he owns some of these high-flying tech stocks, and he's a, he's a straight value guy. He's just an old school value guy. Again, very idiosyncratic attribution of, of alpha to what he does. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really excited to get that out the door. So that, that's going to be fantastic. Well, as a guy who's really light on value, which has been, I mean, I, I've so, I sold my last value, my, my last value brand yesterday. <laughs> I was like, okay, this carnage and growth is just, there's some names that I just have to own. So I can't wait to look at this one and then look inside the holdings um, and you said it's going to be active, not passive, so it, it can be kind of ever-changing, or does he tend to be a, a fairly buy-and-hold guy? He's fairly buy-and-hold. I mean, I'll, I'll tell you, I mean, it's the, I would tell you, maybe 15% of my gains are, are realized over the course of the past year, so he's more of a buy-and-hold guy. Look, that could change given any environment, because I think the the year last year was obviously very unique in many ways in terms of unexpected performance. So uh, I, I think going forward that performance will obviously be more muted, but uh, you know, by and large, he's, he's certainly a buy and hold guy. Awesome. Well, maybe we'll, maybe we'll have to have him on and uh, we'll talk a little deep value. Cause it's funny you people, you know, I, I'm on Twitter a lot and I, I, frankly, I think it's a wonderful psychology experiment and there's still a lot of people that are kind of deer in the headlights from a growth perspective. And, and there's just, you know, I, I don't, in some ways, some of the value names just aren't as sexy. So I understand why it's harder to get involved with something that just doesn't have a lot of sex appeal. But at the end of the day, we're in this business for gains. So if there's gains in a boring value stock with a nice dividend, why should we be unwilling to take a shot? <laughs> You know, it's much better than losing money. I could tell you that from today. <laughs> uh, Gabriel Hammond, good to, good to really catch up with you. Looking forward to hopefully being even a, a shareholder in LUXE and uh, looking forward to the value ETF when it gets launched, maybe over the next 30 days. No, great, great hanging out with you today. Really, really appreciate the, the time. Thank you, Eric. Absolutely. Talk to you soon. All right, take care. Talk soon. Thanks for listening to Mega Brands, everybody. I'm your host, Eric Clark. For more information on this podcast and to learn more about the brand relevancy scoring system we use, be sure to check out the website at globalbrandsmatter.com. While you're there, make sure to sign up for the market newsletter and check out my latest thoughts on our favorite portfolio brands in the dynamic brand section. If you have any questions or want to learn more about the dynamic brands approach, send me a message on the contact tab. Thanks again for listening, everybody. Have a great day.